0: Welcome to Research Bytes, the podcast about research students and their journey in academia. Uh, Today we have a little bit of a um, a change-up from our regular programming. This is our first non-STEM researcher on the podcast. So um, if you like numbers and measuring things, um, stop listening now. (laughs) Um, So today I am um, very pleased to have... Um, second year PhD student Sean Perry, who's at the University of Sydney in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and her uh, PhD project is focused on the gendered and racial logics of climate change. So, how are you, Sean?
1: I'm well, thank you. How are you all? Very Good,
0: thank well. you.
2: Well, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very Good. much.
3: <laughs> uh, so the first thing we kind of normally get into in the in our podcast is just like to ask you how you actually got into research um, and what kind of yeah made you uh, choose the path that you're on now
1: yeah so I did my undergrad at the University of Sydney majoring in government and international relations and kind of chose um, as many government and IR subjects as I could I just really loved um, all the subjects I chose and was lucky enough to do quite a few great political theory uh, subjects. And the thing with political theory is, while it's very broad, it's all looking at different conceptions and understandings of power. Mm. And the one understanding of power which made sense to me was the feminist theoretical understanding of power. So throughout my undergrad, um, I then started to choose uh, one or two subjects which looked a little bit more at uh, gender, a little bit more at race, more critical approaches to the study of international relations. Um, I decided to do an honours year at the University of Sydney where I looked at the white women that voted for Donald Trump, mm. um, which I found to be absolutely startling considering the um, how many um, of those women supported Trump in his campaign. Um, so that was a really fascinating year and then after taking a year off and thinking about what I was really interested in, um, I just kept coming back to climate change. I mean, it's hard mm. to <laughs> escape climate change at the moment. Um, and thinking of where I could, using you know this understanding of power, justice, um, and thinking of climate change in action, um, how I would like to approach that kind of broader subject.
2: Mm-hmm. What did you find in your in your honours subject or your honours research that might have kind of led you back towards the, the climate change discussion?
1: I guess what I found was that when people hold on to power, white women in this sense, when they have a small grasp of power, they really don't want to let go of it. So you would think, why would white women support a man who has been accused widely of sexual assault, who supported, you know, Brett Kavanaugh um, when he was um, accused of sexual assault, one of the Supreme Court justices, um, you know, why would they seemingly align themselves with a leader who seemingly so anti-women? Mm. And race has so much to do with that. And I think with climate change, we've had the technological solutions to respond to climate change for so many years we have evidence of how many populations are severely affected by climate change but we still haven't had the paradigm shift to really mitigate the consequences of climate change and the people that will be most affected are the most vulnerable in our society so that tends to be women um, because of economic disadvantage you know um tends to be people residing in what we would call an international relations in the global south. Um, And I think that for me, trying to understand that power dynamic and understand how inaction has been justified um, was a really interesting puzzle.
0: Mm -hmm. There's one one thing that I think, you, you keep using this word power, and I think most people would understand in a general sense, what power means. But in your field, it has a quite a. It doesn't really have a defined sort of. It doesn't have like a major definition, right? But it's, um, it's quite a large concept in, in your work, right?
1: Yeah, I, there's so many different definitions yeah, exactly. of power. We could yeah. talk about the three faces. I don't want to really, you know, give everyone um, a <laughs> political theory 101 class here today. Yeah, we we don't oh, know I, it as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think I need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but
2: Please I, do. <laughs>
1: but I think in a um, in a kind of feminist sense and in an intersectional sense, there's another buzzword. We're looking at how you know, different experiences, um, of life, you know, often due to kind of gender differences, racial differences, class differences, expressions of sexuality, etc. uh, may make certain people experience more, um, oppression, right? Um, conversely, there may also be, um, places for solidarity, um, to overcome kind of, um, uh, power being... Uh, put onto oppression or injustice
3: hmm. and so doing uh international relations in university did you always kind of see yourself um going down a research career or was that sort of something where you were like okay I, I i want to take this into a political role or some other kind of role where do you think um yeah do most people take that sort of research journey in that sense if they want to be in that industry or in that field i guess of of, um, of international relations?
1: Mm, I would say no um, in regards to most people. I think that, like, government, government and IR is such a great major at Sydney University. It's one of the kind of... It has the most subjects, um, one of the largest departments in the kind of arts and social sciences um, school. So um, I think for me, I when I started definitely had that naive um, idealistic view of one day I'll go to Geneva and work for the UN Mm. or you know I thought of myself being in kind of a West Wing political staffer type role um, all of these really sexy conceptions Mm. of one day I'll be very important working in the kind of cogs of the political machine Um, and then throughout my journey I realized that um, I wasn't too sure what I wanted my career to be. I think that happens when you start to critically look at organisations like mm. the UN um, during my time at university. But I realised what I was really interested in, and that's what made me align myself with research. It was, okay, I'm not sure if I want to go work in Canberra and want to be a staff, or I'm not sure if I want to go down the NGO route or what I exactly want to do, mm. but I know what I'm interested in. And that's made me pick up an honors year, and now I'm almost in my third year of a PhD, so it's kept me going so far. <laughs> nice.
2: yeah. So if you could give us uh, one or two liners on what your PhD topic at the moment is, that would be great.
1: Yeah, so I am doing a um, discourse analysis, which I'll explain a little bit more in a moment, um, of 20 years of US presidential climate change discourse. So what that means is I'm looking at um, from Bill Clinton's election to uh, the first two years of Joe Biden, and I'm reading every speech made by every president um, from Clinton to Biden. So that also covers W. Bush, Obama and Trump. Mm. Every speech they have made in relation to climate change, energy or the environment. Oh,
0: God. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite an undertaking. <laughs> <laughs> A small task.
1: And my research question is centered on this idea, um, as was said in the beginning, around gendered and racial logics. Now that's informed by fantastic bodies of critical climate change literature from decolonial perspectives, feminist perspectives, that talk again about um, not just experiences of injustice and vulnerability. um, And I don't want to stress that too much because um there's also so much work equally that talks about knowledge and about expertise and about um ways in which, you know, women, these people in the global south that are continuously painted as vulnerable, you know, actually have so much agency and actually have mm. the lived experience to be able to respond. It's just institutional mm-hmm. factors which are getting them away from the table, keeping them from the table I should say. Um But um, I became really interested in thinking of if in 20 years of climate change discourse accompanying presidents who have been very vocal about um, the urgency of climate change, such as Clinton, Obama and Biden, um, and then also having presidents who outrightly deny climate change, such as Trump, or who acknowledge climate change, but... um, uh, don't wish to move very quickly on it, such as W. Bush, became interested in looking at are there kind of similar discourses which are sustaining these messages throughout these presidents, and whether or not there might be um, kind of um, from a theoretical sense something um, gendered or racial there. So, what that means is. Um, the way in which climate change is responded to, if we're understanding who's vulnerable to climate change, if the solutions that we're coming to are always um, technological, they're always about market mechanisms, where is the justice there? Where is indigenous knowledge there? Um, Where are women's experiences? Who's at the table and who's being heard? Um, So I think, what I've found thus far is that there are kind of a lot of discourse about um, the economy, which is really important here. There's a lot of discourse about security, which is really important here. And there's also, with Biden, a lot about justice as well. So we're starting to see a bit of a recognition that um, we need to um, prioritise the voices um, of uh, women of people of colour who are unjustly affected by climate change, class being a big factor here as well. Um, New Orleans with Hurricane Katrina is one of Mm -hmm. the most classic examples of what we call environmental racism. And now um, in the 21st century, um, well, not the 21st century, sorry, that was already in the 21st (laughs) century. Now in kind of the 2020s, we're talking a little bit more about climate change racism Mm -hmm. as opposed to just environmental racism.
3: As a sort of just a general, how are some of the ways that climate change and uh, gender intersect or how, how, how are men and women affected differently by climate change? Because I feel like some people, it's, it's not very talked about you know, today in, in, in our media and stuff and obviously
0: we talk about this, but I think for some people it, it, it's not actually known. Um, and also I think there's that, which is kind of what you were referring to before, that sort of, as I've heard you say before, this technocratic idea of climate change, it's always very <clears throat> very science excuse me, very science based, very like, okay, you know, the 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 world is heating up, you know, like the weather's changing and all these very like measurable statistical variables which we all know and love. Uh but of course that's not really the whole picture of the of the discussion, right?
1: Well, if we so in Indigenous communities for years throughout the world. In Australia, you know, there's so many uh, 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 studies done in the Arctic as well with Indigenous and First Nations communities. Um, There has been knowledge about climate change for decades and decades. Also, climate change may be understood completely differently Mm -hmm. because when you think about it, when people were dispossessed of their lands, when colonisation happened, that was a big climate change like that was a huge climate change mm. that dramatically uh, changed the landscape yeah. um, and you know uh, these kind of uh this link between colonization industrialization is a really big part of this picture which is something which is not um recognized In the um, elite kind of narratives of climate change but is something which is very much there in the critical literature as well as in the um, activist storytelling and in communities Um, so so often it's about lived experiences Mm -hmm. and the lived experiences are telling us at the moment that when natural disasters happen women are often um, affected um, at a different um, in a different way, and there's it's gendered, right? It's not just about women. So um, women, for example, will experience uh, more sexual violence in the wake of natural disasters. In times of food insecurity, they may go without um, feeding their family at in greater instances. Uh, in many countries, women are responsible to, for the resource collection, collecting firewood, collecting water. When water becomes more scarce, that can be a tougher burden on them. Um, but also you know men may have to migrate away from their families at greater levels Um, as well as you know with gender we obviously can't look at gender in a vacuum so we also have to look at um, poverty and we have to look at um, experiences of class and economic injustice as well as race so
0: all all, all the big ideas (laughs) so um uh
1: in the the countries which are often most deemed the most vulnerable to climate change are countries in africa as well as bangladesh Mm -hmm. um so there's so many studies out of these places talking about the gendered consequences of climate change linking them to kind of broader power dynamics of Going from colonization, who, which countries have more money, which countries don't, how that affects, um, how you can respond to climate change. Mm. We saw the devastating experiences in Pakistan recently, mm. uh, but again, we have to be really careful as well because we don't want to end up saying that women and poor people in the global south are this, uh, men, you know, one group mm. that don't have a voice, don't have differences. I think it's important when looking at climate change and looking at injustice and power dynamics, we talk about, you know, differences in vulnerability, but we also talk about how um, there are things being done at the community level and there are um, there is a lot of knowledge and there is a lot of agency there as well. Mm. Um, so uh, uh, the last kind of gendered... Um thing with climate change is also that women just often aren't at the table with mitigation planning, mm-hmm. adaptation planning in the aftermath of natural mm-hmm. disasters, and at the UN level they're trying to implement it's called gender mainstreaming, making sure that more women are in positions of power um, but you know that's still a work in progress.
3: That last point is really really interesting right because I think it's shown that women, Uh, in general care more about the environment or are more engaged with environmental consequences than men. And in political positions, like female people in power um, put more, uh, like support bills uh, around climate policy Mm -hmm. much more than men. And it's like, this is our like, number one biggest challenge that society is ever gonna face now at the moment currently like, we need our best at the ta- at the table, as you say. Like, we need everyone's best people, our best minds, and we're still, you know, marginalising such a big community. It's really sad. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and the other point which you just made me think of is the role of masculinity in all of this as well. Mm. So, if we look at Donald Trump, um, if we look at Scott Morrison even, a lot of the times... Um, with their kind of, um, when they were advocating for fossil fuels, they were really putting on this kind of suit of protective masculinity. This idea of rather than looking at populations which are affected by climate change or will be affected by climate change, looking at people who may lose from fossil fuel, um, fossil fuel companies becoming Mm. um, less powerful. Mm. Um, And so there's so, again, Sorry to be uh, continuously talk about the literature, but there's so much um, fantastic literature linking ex- different expressions of masculinity to mm-hmm. climate change as well, which is another gendered side. Mm. And again, we know that that masculinity is often um, a very white expression of masculinity, um, which is protecting the fossil fuels in Western countries when we think of people like Trump or Scott Morrison.
2: yeah. So you, you mentioned a little bit that some community work is being done in places like Africa Bangladesh maybe um to involve those marginalized communities at the table earlier on. Have you got any examples of that for us of what's being done to to change really
1: yeah i not off the top of my head anything specific, but there are you know in every country um which is being already affected by climate change, women are there, you know, and think of children as well. You know, it's a... Mm -hmm. People are um, having these conversations um, and I think that the more is done at the kind of global institutional level to recognise... ..to recognise the different needs of different communities and recognise, you know, different gendered experiences of climate change um, is really important, Um, especially when I mentioned before, this idea of security, which has come up a lot when I'm reading through these presidential um, speeches. A lot of the time in the West, there is this... um, idea pushed that with climate change there'll be a flood of migrants. Mm. Oh. It's always very racialized yeah. as well. It's always this um idea that there'll be a Build f- the wall yeah, of the caravan. Exactly. Yeah. In Australia this idea of p- the Pacific um people who in from Pacific Island nations, mm. um and Africa is, you know, despite it all the different countries within Africa it's always this idea of African migrants will come and overwhelm Europe mm. and overwhelm America due to climate change
3: mm.
1: and the I've read some great literature which actually says people often don't want to leave mm. their homes mm. people have connections to their land yeah. um, especially in the Pacific Islands with different understandings of how you look after your land in a very different way um, there's a very different knowledge set than there is in the West, and mm. we have to acknowledge that. and so um I think it's really important to look at these narratives that have been pushed and critically um try and disassemble them and mm. actually incorporate more voices, the voices of people that are this is being that are being affected yeah. most by climate change.
3: so you mentioned before, uh, just, if we maybe take it more specifically to your phd now um discourse analysis looking at the speeches of these uh, us presidents what is discourse analysis um uh, i think you also mentioned um something about uh, the the logics so different logics you're looking at or mm-hmm. looking at, at, at different lenses that you could maybe analyze this text through Give us a little bit of an explanation of that and maybe some of the main things that you're seeing kind of pop out um, throughout those different speeches.
1: Yeah, great. So discourse, in short, is where meaning is made. So the number one kind of um, example of discourse is use of language, right? There's also different visual, you know, representations of discourse. But um, for myself, I'm reading language and looking at how specifically... Um, different meanings have been produced and from a, um, a political, uh, you know, like a methodological basis, again, coming back to power, if we look at how certain meanings are produced, that means that other competing meanings may be left off the table or mm-hmm. may be deliberately hidden. Mm-hmm. So a good example of this is when um, Scott Morrison says um, that... Uh, fossil that turning away from fossil fuels will impact regional australians severely Mm. that's then taking away any discussion about if it's inevitable that australia has to move away from fossil fuels how do we make sure that regional australians who work in these industries um are able to transition away and be paid justly right Mm. if you continuously say the same um messaging and the way in which it is said convey certain um, political messages which are entwined with power Mm. so I look specifically with discourse I look at narratives as humans we fundamentally stories, it's how we communicate it's a very strategic political tool to talk in narrative mm. so if we understand narratives to be made up of discourses, so different ways in which meaning is being expressed, then we go one step under, finishing your question, understanding discourses to be held together by logics, so logics are what m- makes discourse make sense mm. because no language when spoken um is fixed, right There's different um, discourses which compete together all the time, um, but logics of what makes something make sense. So when Scott Morrison says uh, regional Australians are being will be really negatively impacted, I will protect regional Australians, what is he talking about there? He's talking about a very specific understanding of white, um, white Australia that has been supported by the mining industries he's um, going back to these um, uh, kind of historical connotations between um, white working-class uh, masculinity and um, and the coal industry um, so it's really about looking at language looking at potentially how this may fit into different narratives but then going okay if we consistently say that the only way to respond to climate change is to for small government has to be run by the market Um, there can't be any um, it needs to kind of exist in this really kind of capitalist technocratic space what is that actually saying? Mm. What holds that message together? Um,
0: Does that fit into the whole, um, like, um, emissions trading idea that, like, this is sort of, like, for a long time was held as, like, a solution, Mm -hmm. but it's just, like, another market that people don't have access to? Like, you know, the the world is obviously dealing with these consequences, and, you know, we know know that... um, uh, uh, less developed countries, they sort of are the the, um, what do you call it the, the grounds where, where these these super rich companies dump their waste and yeah. dump these these carbon credits and all these different things. Is that does that feed into that sort of um, um, yeah those masculine logics?
1: Well, yeah, of course. I mean, in a way, I mean, if there's, you know, carbon capture is another mm. example of that. So. You know, there are some great technological advances here, and I don't want to discard them, but when we're continuously looking for um, solutions which will allow the people in power to continue polluting communities, which which won't fundamentally change the injustices felt in society, I think there's an issue there. Mm -hmm. I think climate change could be something where we start to move around and uh, change the game a little bit. Um, And it shouldn't have to be something where places like Pakistan and Bangladesh, which haven't contributed majorly to climate change, will continuously, or Tuvalu, you know, with Mm. the threat of severe sea level rise. It shouldn't have to be that these nations um, continuously hear the same solutions being Mm. peddled. But nothing's really changing.
3: Yeah. I, um, I have quite a few questions. <laughs> that was an introspective. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That was like a, and yeah. yeah. One, <laughs> I, one question I have is, um, climate change is a global issue, evidently, from all of these different um, countries that we've been talking about. How is your focus on the US, how is that relating to the global sense? So mm-hmm. obviously the US is like a powerhouse, and you know, they've kind of... Almost held the discourse, I guess, potentially about climate change a lot. And reduce um,
0: emissions, right?
1: Yeah, you just answered my question. Oh <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah,
3: oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, sorry. So uh, yeah, how does uh, how can your questions uh, focusing on the US? How do they relate to the global issues? Mm. Um, yeah.
1: No, so that's a great question, and um, Lockie's right. So. The reason why I chose the US to focus on is because the US historically has been the biggest um, emitter Mm. of fossil fuels, of, um, uh, sorry, of emissions. Um, But they also are the country which tends to lead um, Mm -hmm. international um, climate change uh, treaties um, and a very, um, a big player at the UN. Um, But also it comes back to this idea of justice and responsibility. So with the US having emitted the most kind of historical amount of carbon dioxide um, at the expense of the, you know, that rapid development has been at the expense of all these other countries, which are severely feeling, feeling the effects of climate change and haven't had the same economic um, development. I believe that they should um, be leading the charge. Mm. Um, And I I think because they so often have positioned themselves as leading the charge under Clinton, Obama, Biden now, for example, I think for me it was interesting to go back and say, okay, so not much has actually changed. Mm. So what is the difference between Mm. these presidents? And what's interesting is that a lot of the same... Discourse is being produced by this different presidents of different parties. So we talk about energy security. We need to move away from fossil fuels um, for, the United, uh, for the energy security of the United States. And they always package it in a way of we need to move away from getting oil from countries that don't like us <laughs> or unstable countries. Obama says the exact same thing W. Bush says same thing said by trump also said by clinton um, i find it interesting to kind of deep uh, go quite deeply into what they're saying and realizing that while we often think of climate change as a partisan issue nowadays with more conservative voices often being anti-climate change or downplaying the risks of climate change and more progressive parties, um, they're, they're, you know, there's nuance to that too. Um, mm. But often more progressive parties are more kind of openly um, supportive of climate change action. I found that, you know, W. Bush and Obama said a lot of the same stuff That's over really a long time. And I think that going back to those logics, it's important to kind of look at what's sustaining you know, mm. what's sustaining that messaging? Is it issues of security? Is it issues of um, justice? Is it issues of um, the economy? I think thinking of justice, looking at how Joe Biden has often centered communities, has, you know, vocalized that poor people, uh, people of color, you know, there's gendered impacts of climate change. He's vocalized that. Mm. Um, so that's, a, I think, a really significant change. But I think it's been really interesting to go back to Trump. And the way that he positions uh, the need to protect fossil fuels, reopen all the coal mines, hmm. is often in very similar justice language. Mm, it's yeah. this community has been um, in, uh, affected. I'm going to protect them. Um, so I think there's it's interesting to look at the differences but also look at the similarities. Um All presidents of the United States, regardless of if, you know, the climate denier, Donald Trump or whoever, all talk about the importance of the U.S. being the most powerful military and economic power. That continuously plays out. Um, And that is often, I believe, the justification for not acting quick enough on climate change, the importance of economic growth. Mm -hmm. Um, That has maintained throughout. All of them. Um, I'm just finishing my um, Obama analysis, so can't talk too much to Biden there whether that changes. I think that'll be a really mm. interesting thing. Moving, if it will one day be possible to move out of this paradigm of we have to strive for economic growth. Yeah. Um, because that has justified pulling out of the Paris Agreement, W. Bush um, not signing on to Kyoto um, was all justified through. Economic this growth. Economic growth,
3: yeah. There's clearly like so much said that isn't said in those kind of discourse, uh, in their features and that you are able to find through this sort of analysis. I was wondering if you could uh, comment slightly on the, the, this is something that we've talked about before, but someone who's ignorant like myself uh, coming in, you know, in a quantitative uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: text mining, let's put it all through a big machine learning algorithm. Yeah. Can you comment on the obvious, um, you know, necessity to do this kind of de- discourse analysis that takes context sort of into all of this um, qualitative mm. research, I-, I guess, qualitative?
1: Um... Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, um... From my understanding um, from teaching second-year methods classes for politics students, (laughs) quantitative research is often grounded in this idea that you can find objective truth, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And that's what you're striving for in a natural kind of scientific framework. In the kind of research that I do, we don't believe objective truth Mm -hmm. exists. We look at discourse and we look at how meaning is created and see the world as something which um, is made through that discourse Um, and understanding as i said the power that um, supports um, discourse becoming hegemonic and um, these kind of dominant narratives that get um, articulated by political elites i think it's really important for me to you know not just develop an algorithm i mean there's some fantastic quantitative work in political studies that's a great thing about the discipline it's you know mixed methods used by different um uh, academics but for me really reading through these texts and really trying to understand um it's not about the intention of the the um, leader because I don't believe we can fig- You know I don't. Mm. I don't it think out. it's about that. Yeah. I think it's about seeing exactly what's being articulated, how it's being articulated, mm. and what that does. Who does that benefit, and who's left out of that? Um, and you know George W. Bush in the aftermath of Hurricane mm. Katrina, horrific horrific um natural disaster, which you know is often as I said before talked about in a kind of environmental racist sense because of the big African American population of Hurricane Katrina and the disaster relief in the aftermath was absolutely um like it was horrendous and the poverty there as well and uh whenever he often when talking um in New Orleans, he would often uh, bring it back to crime continuously. He would always, when talking about mm. disaster relief, he would always talk about crime. So what is...
3: Yeah, what's the link? Yeah.
1: And the link there is because highly, uh, you know, high, high um, African-American population, mm. let's bring back it back to this idea of law and order and this idea of policing. Mm. Um, and I think that doing qualitative, you know, for you, a lot slower research, spending months reading through these things, um, being informed by some really excellent critical literature and uh, finding the links, finding similar logics, um, I think is a good exercise. And I think with climate change, as you said, being such a global, far-reaching crisis... With all the different experiences of climate change, all the different knowledge about climate change, I think it's important to have um, different uh, studies in that aren't just yeah. valuing quantitative scientific um, expertise, because that's very important. but. It's not just important to know how much carbon dioxide is being released in the atmosphere. It's also important to talk to people on the ground and understand their experiences, how they understand, also how they understand climate change.
2: Yeah, totally. So if we come back to your journey a little bit now, you're about halfway through the PhD. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about your early career ambitions. (laughs) Where where do you see yourself heading now post-PhD?
1: Um, so I would love to continue working in academia, but I'm not sure if this has been vocalised on the podcast before. The, in, um, where I'm at in the arts and social sciences, um, it can be a very, um, difficult to get a job there. <laughs> um, I would, you know, if it isn't, I would love to stay doing research and I would love to be doing research um, either, you know, at the university level or for an NGO um, that is really taking into account um, different experiences of climate change and really, again, always going back to, I think, the important gendered and racial consequences of climate change. I think political policy, which was initially very attractive for me, I think, you know, at at least in Australia, we still are kind of peddling a lot of the same narratives about climate change, even under our new Prime Minister. So I can find myself being a little bit disillusioned with the political kind of space here. Um, But I think there's just such important work to be done. And I hope that I can play some very, very, very small role in that one day.
2: (laughs) And if you could go back, you know, the learning curves for researchers, research students, especially students, can be quite steep. So if you go back to Shan, beginning of your PhD, what is one piece of advice Sean today would give first-year PhD, (laughs) Sean?
1: I think it's about the most important thing is to build networks with supportive people, Hmm. and I think that... My experience of the PhD was, which started within COVID and within lockdown, felt very, very isolating. And it's only through this year, going to my first conference, being part of some great workshops, having some new PhD students under my supervisor start that I've started to develop those relationships, um, which is the probably one of the most tangible differences, between your STEM experiences of the PhD and within mine, um, I think in the humanities, we often think of it as a lone scholar in a library. um, And I just don't think that's a good way to operate. Mm. I think I would, as well with, you know, at times the the stress of the PhD, dealing with some kind of interesting egos as well, I, I would just recommend that, PhD students, and if I went back, would start to um, look to make connections. And I don't mean networking, I just mean look to actually make connections, because I think in my second year now, having some people just to have a coffee with um, is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that a lot of uh, people doing their PhD that I know in a similar field have found the experience quite isolating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this year has been better for me for trying to move outside of my lonely library bubble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: I think uh, Felix Lachlan and the rest of our STEM listeners too would agree that it's not just humanities, it'd be STEM. Like, it's so easy in research to um, to get isolated. Mm-hmm. I, it was part of the feedback I would often get coming into it is that you know, PhD is a really isolating process. Um, really isolating journey but it hasn't been for me and I think part of that's because of making connections early on even from people outside of your your networks Mm -hmm. Um, having those outside perspectives can be super valuable yeah
0: all right well thank you so much for the chat Um, I think hopefully our listeners have learned some things we've definitely learned some things and yeah there's there's a lot of work to be done in this space so i'm really happy that there's people doing that
1: thank you for having me (laughs) it's lovely to have a
3: chat (laughs) catch us next time for the next episode
0: yeah we'll see you next round
1: bye